the snow comes, the snow goes. We'll get another couple days of it this week, it looks like. This is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. On the show today, we're talking to Congresswoman Diana DeGette about her bill to permanently protect hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness in Colorado. Plus, we will look back on the first military action that would eventually be honored with the Congressional Medal of Honor. But in hindsight, there are no heroes here. That's this week in Western history. But first, we have three big news stories to cover. Number one, it's been a while since we've talked about Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, the national monuments in Utah that President Trump is trying to shrink. They are back in the news because the Trump administration released its proposed management plans for both monuments and the land that they are trying to remove from the monuments as well. Unsurprisingly, those management plans would open up Bears Ears and Grand Staircase to mining, drilling, and logging. The big threat is coal at Grand Staircase and uranium around Bears Ears. As we have seen time and time again, the Interior Department ignored hundreds of thousands of public comments that urged them not to do this. This may be the first time, however, that Interior has admitted that out loud. In a Myths and Facts document that the department put out, they revealed that out of 250,000 comments received, they considered four of them to be valid complaints. Four out of 250,000. All right. Story number two this week. The Interior Department gave oil and gas companies the green light to kill migratory birds. This is a proposed rule that would make permanent a legal opinion from Interior's top lawyer, regarding the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. It had been before that companies could be held liable for violating that act if they knew the actions they were taking could foreseeably lead to the deaths of migratory birds. But under the new interpretation of the law, companies will only get in trouble if they intentionally kill birds. In other words, Interior has already admitted this, by the way, that if the Deepwater Horizon blowout happened today, BP would not be held responsible for killing all of those thousands of birds in the Gulf of Mexico. The ultimate result of this is going to be, looks like, an extra 500,000 to a million dead birds every year, largely dying in uh, waste pits near oil and gas operations. All right, story number three. The Trump administration's proposed budget is out. As we have seen in past years, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt wants a complete evisceration of programs like the Land and Water Conservation Fund, where he is calling for a 97% cut in discretionary spending. He wants to cut nearly 1,000 jobs and $580 million from the National Park Service. And he wants to get rid of more than 800 researchers at the U.S. Geological Survey, eviscerating research into climate change and more. The good news here is that this budget proposal is dead on arrival in Congress. It is not going anywhere. So it's a document that you have to look at just as a wish list of what David Bernhardt and President Trump would do to our public lands if left to their own devices. And that brings us to a plan that is part of the Energy Department's budget proposal. It would start to build a national uranium stockpile, spending $1.5 billion over the next 10 years. So who would benefit from that kind of government handout? Well, of course, it's the uranium companies that pushed to shrink Bears Ears. 
And they also want to lift a moratorium on uranium mining claims around the Grand Canyon. This is all stuff we have talked about in earlier episodes of this podcast. And that's where this grand plan starts to come into focus. Killing birds, shrinking national monuments, a massive spending plan so taxpayers keep foreign-owned uranium companies from going bankrupt. The energy secretary, Dan Bruyette, isn't done here, by the way. He says that the recommendations from the administration's nuclear fuel working group will be released in another two weeks. Hang on to your hat, folks. It's only the beginning of February, and this is going to be a wild year. Our guest this week is the dean of Colorado's congressional delegation. She's a chief deputy whip in the House and a fourth-generation Coloradan. Representative Diana DeGette, thank you for inviting us down to your office today. So glad to be with you. I want to start with the Colorado Wilderness Act. This is a bill that you have put together. It is the product of literally years of work. It's made it through the House Natural Resources Committee. But I, I want to hear from you, number one, What's in the bill? Why is it so important? And what is the strategy for getting it over the finish line? So this is a bill. um, It's kind of a different perspective on wilderness than people are used to. People are used to the high craggy mountain peaks, um, maroon bells, and all the other wonderful areas. This is a canyon country bill. It's mostly Bureau of Land Management land, lower-lying canyon country. And what happened is in 1964, the Wilderness Act only talked about forest service land, these high alpine areas. And then in the 80s, they realized that low-lying lands can have beautiful wilderness characteristics. And so the BLM decided it was going to designate wilderness study areas, areas that could have that special um, remote characteristic that's so important for wilderness. So they designated a bunch of areas in the West as wilderness study areas. And in the 1990s, a whole group of citizen activists in Colorado went around and tried to capture the rest of what they considered to be the remaining special wilderness in Colorado. And they put together a bill, the Colorado Wilderness Act. They came to me in 1999 as a very young member of Congress, someone who had been, you know, fourth generation in Colorado, and as you said, someone who had been active in wilderness um, preservation for many years as a lawyer, they said, will you do this bill? And I was so excited. I thought it would pass like the next year. <laughs> and of course, uh, years later. politics politics intervened. But this is a bill. It's it's Right now, it's over 600,000 acres. It's 32 separate areas, all in Colorado. Um, and almost all of it is BLM land. The vast majority of it is those wilderness study areas, but then more areas that have been identified. And this bill has had community input. It's had um, hearings. And I myself have taken many trips to the areas in my bill by horseback, by hiking, by rafting, all approved wilderness um approaches. And um, finally, now this year, the stars have aligned. Uh, The bill passed the Natural Resources Committee last fall, and it looks like it's going to be on the floor as part, uh, as really the anchor of a larger wilderness package um, uh, on the week of February 10th. So it looks like Congress will be passing a very large wilderness bill with my my bill as the anchor of over a million acres of new wilderness in the West. And then 
moves on to the Senate, where, as we've talked about on this podcast, it, it's obviously a much bigger challenge getting big public lands, big environmental bills through the Senate. Uh, what's it looking like? And, and, and can you get uh, a, a big Western delegation? Can you get bipartisan support in the Senate to, to get that? Through there. Well, so so uh, even though it's hard to get big public lands bills through, last year, don't forget, Congress passed the John Dingell bill, which had over a million acres throughout the West and other places of, of new lands. And there is some sense in the House and the Senate of protecting these very special areas. In Colorado, a recent survey showed that over 70% of the people who live on the Western Slope where these lands are located want more wilderness. Colorado, you know, we've had this huge population growth. Our economy has shifted. And so now public lands preservation is really not just essential for the future and for our our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to have wild places they can go. It's also a core of our economic development. We've talked on this podcast about the the CORE Act, a a different bill, and it sounds like this is in many ways complementary in terms of areas and and focus. Is there a hope or a chance that these then would get combined on the Senate side or? or, Yes, it was. So so, uh, the CORE Act is is a bill that's been sponsored by my colleague, Congressman Joe Neguse. And both of us are on the Natural Resources Committee. The CORE Act is about 400,000 acres, and it's mostly Forest Service land, and it's mostly multiple use. So in a way, as you say, they are are companion bills. His bill is Forest Service land, multiple use. My bill is Canyon Country, BLM land, wilderness. So together— if we pass these two bills, it'll be over a million acres of public land protected in our state alone. So we uh, actually, I just talked to Congressman Neguse about this last week. We're both really excited about the prospect of both of those bills uh, as companion bills becoming law and really, really helping us towards environmental protection in Colorado. One of the other major programs that I know you've been a champion of is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, earlier this session, it was uh, reauthorized, but not fully funded. And right. there's a, a big push underway right now. Can you explain why that linkage between authorization and funding is so important going well, forward? Well, so the Land and Water Conservation Fund has been critical for preservation of areas all throughout the West, and including right here in Colorado. Everybody's benefited from it. It doesn't do any good if you reauthorize a bill, if you don't provide the resources to actually perform the services. So that's why we're having a big push to reauthorize the funding as well. We do a lot of focusing here as a public lands group on the the federal side and the the big public lands part of LWCF, but as a, a largely urban and suburban district, LWCF is also very important for for urban parks. Oh yes, I mean we've parks in Denver, parks in Englewood, parks all, all all across the country get funding for their preservation from the LWCF, which is why the LWCF has had strong bipartisan support over the years because it's it's in everybody's district. So so this is why again it doesn't do any good to just reauthorize it if you don't put the money in. 
let's talk about political strategy then for all of these bills. Uh, Colorado Wilderness Act, CORE Act, LWCF. We're heading into an election year. Congress obviously starts to head out and start campaigning. Do you have a hope that these could get done before that, or is it more likely this all gets rolled up into a lame duck session? What does that look like? Well, I, I mean, it's true. Congress is getting out and campaigning, but there are real benefits, I think, to politicians from both sides of the aisle to campaign on these public lands issues. Because as, they're so popular. As I told you, it, on the western slope of Colorado, we we at, uh, there was a poll done just last fall, and they asked the question, do you want more wilderness in Colorado? And then they explained what that meant. And the more you explained it, the more people supported it. It's the same thing with the LWCF. And so I would I would think that politicians would want to do it. Now, now from a political strategy, uh, one of my specialties as someone who's been in Congress for a while is actually passing bills. I don't I, I'm not one that wants to say, okay, I passed my bill through the House. Well, okay, that doesn't mean it's wilderness. I think that that as the session draws to a close, there will be a number of members on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Capitol, who want public lands projects. And I think we'll be able to negotiate a big public lands project. So they and, can campaign on it? Well, or or even after the oh, campaign. Sure. And, and, and with the funding, I think that um, there will be strong pressure on the appropriations to committee to make sure that they adequately fund the the land and water conservation fund. Let's change gears and, and talk about oversight uh, in the, the Trump era. Uh, how much comfort should we take right now? Are the institutions uh, in America, are, are, are they solid enough? Are they are they enough to protect public lands versus how out of touch this administration seems to be with voters when it comes to environmental and public lands issues? Well, one thing I say to people, and and I, I'm I'm a politician who is really focused on getting things done, getting bills passed, working together. But I will say, I think it was really important when the Democrats took control of the House in 2018, because what that did is it enabled us to conduct that oversight that maybe the Republican committee chairs wouldn't have done. For example, I'm the chair now of the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee. So a lot of the Trump administration's environmental regulations, uh, a lot of the EPA uh, decisions that they've made have really come under fire from our committee, and we have been um, having hearings on on many of their policies and getting the documents and and shining light on it. And I really think that that oversight is important, so we see what's happening. So between your two committees, obviously, you've got a front row seat to this in terms right. of in terms of oversight. We've seen Secretary Bernhardt stonewall document requests. Is that going to come to a head? Are we going to see subpoenas at well, some point? Well, so, so uh, it's not just Secretary Bernhardt that has ignored document requests. It's happening throughout the administration. And this is a deep concern of ours because, of course, the framers of our Constitution, they had in mind uh, Article 1, 
the Congress, Article Two, the executive, and that the and that that the Congress would have oversight. And so you are going to be seeing subpoenas from. Uh, I don't. I, I I would hope that Secretary Bernhardt would voluntarily work with us on documents. But we're having the same problem with many other agencies, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, HHS, you know, you name it, we're having problems getting documents. And we would hope they would understand it's part of our constitutional duty to do this oversight. Do you worry with how it appears the impeachment trial is going to conclude as we sit here taping on uh, on Friday? Uh, Are you worried that the Trump administration may feel emboldened to start ignoring subpoenas and ignoring court orders. The the Trump administration has already been ignoring subpoenas and court orders. But but um ag- again, part part of the brilliance of our framers was Article 3 is the is the judiciary. And so most of the when when these cases have found their way to the judiciary, most of the time the judiciary has been ordered those documents to be provided. The the frustration that we've had is that the process is so slow and the Trump administration relies on the slowness of the judiciary process to be able to continue to stonewall. But that doesn't mean we're not going to continue our fight. And also, uh, also we can, we can bring witnesses in. And, and I mean, Secretary Bernhardt did come and testify before the Natural Resources Committee. And we've had a number of Trump administration officials come uh, to all of our committees. So, so we're going to continue to put the pressure on. And we will subpoena documents and even witnesses if we have to. Let's talk about climate change. Is it possible to make meaningful progress when the administration is not cooperating and in many cases taking the country backwards, pulling out of the Paris Agreement, for example? Are there opportunities either on the federal or on the state level to start meaningfully addressing climate change? And is this a a case where states are going to have to lead for a bit? Well, the climate change issue is an existential issue, and it's really of urgent, urgent um, importance right now. And I think everybody needs to take the lead. When I worked on the climate change issue back uh, in 2008 and 2009, when we did the Waxman-Markey climate bill in the House, uh, we were thinking, oh, Congress is going to lead. And and the fact that we had the inaction during the years after that, what that meant, it, it was terrible, but it had a silver lining. And the silver lining was state and local governments and even private citizens and organizations really started to step up and and address the issue of climate change. And that has been happening. Now what we need to have is the federal government step up and do something. And it really needs to be at every level of government and, and private citizens. That's how urgent the necessity is. So many of, I mean, the, the good news is when I, even a few years ago, when I came, when I was in Congress, we still had the climate deniers in these committee hearings, people who would actually sit there and say climate change doesn't exist. Now, it seems to me being in the same hearings that that people now all recognize climate change does exist and that it's urgent and important, but the, but the remedy there's a disagreement on the remedy. So I've put together a bill, and I know there's other bills in Congress, to um, set the same carbon limit as the Green New Deal does by 2050. 
and but but uh, allows for states to achieve that goal in ways that they can that they can um, comply with. Similar to the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, other really successful environmental laws. I'm getting ready to introduce this bill soon. I had delayed introducing the bill because I was hoping to get a Republican co-sponsor, but 100% by 2050 was a bridge too far for Mm. them. Although some of our energy companies like Excel Energy, they've set that goal for themselves. So Even even, even, Arizona, uh, the the big power company there just did that. Right. And so private industry is actually recognizing that this is a goal that we should strive for and try to achieve. So I'm going to introduce my bill and I still have hope. Of, of bringing uh, bipartisan support along. I, I guess that brings up the American Petroleum Institute, API, giant 100-year-long history lobbying for oil and gas, and they've now just pivoted from climate denial to now claiming that oil and gas is part of the climate solution uh, because natural gas power plants are somewhat less polluting than coal power plants. But are, are groups like that the ones standing in the way from saying – Okay, yeah, natural gas may be a bridge fuel, but it's not going to get us to net zero by 2050. So this reminds me of, you might remember this, of the clean coal argument of a few years ago. (laughs) And and, um, and it's all well and good to say that you can make a fossil fuel less, less bad than, than... than uh, it could have been, but that still doesn't mean that there's no carbon imprint. And so, so I agree that that um, that natural gas is cleaner than coal, but we still have to get to zero percent by 2050. And so, so I think if if uh, and and uh, and gradually, frankly, a lot of power companies like Excel Energy in the Arizona. Um, example, they're all realizing that too, uh, but but we're going to have to use uh, natural gas or whatever the fuels are as as a transition. But it's going to have to be an aggressive transition to get to where we need to be. Do you feel like what Colorado did in the last session, passing SB one eighty one, a pretty major overhaul of how the state regulates oil and gas, is that the kind of model you think that? that is complementary to the bill that you're going to be introducing. Is that something that we should see elsewhere? Well, we surely do need need to have strong oversight, but we're also going to need to have the cooperation of the industry to realize that we've got to transition to these very strong and not so distant goals. So what does in terms of the federal in terms of legislation what what does that start specifically looking at in terms of federal policy setting goals of 20 net zero by 2050 uh, how do you incentivize that how do you get enough power capacity how do you get the the transportation industry on board give us just a sense of the the roadmap and the time frame well, there well to I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds with legislation like this. I, we, but, we love to get deep okay, into the well, weeds. Okay, well, well. <laughs> so, so what I've realized after many, many years of of working on climate issues is the way. I mean, the climate change is real, and it's and it's existential. I mean, in in the West, we have 
uh, obviously less snowfall. It impacts the ski industry. It impacts agriculture. But in the in in the coastal areas, they've got flooding. They've got hurricanes. We've got extreme weather events everywhere. But in a country as large as the U.S., every region is going to have different power sources, and it's going to have a different way that they're going to have to meet these goals. I'll never forget, in the early days, I would be talking to some of my friends from the southern United States, and I would say, you know, we really need to move to renewable energy, to solar and wind. And and people from Florida would be saying to me, well, we don't have renewable energy. It'd be like, You don't Hello? have sun in Florida? <laughs> look up. Right. Look up at the sun. And, and so... When I crafted my bill, I tried to do it in a way that would recognize those regional differences and not try to put a one-size-fits-all fabric over that, recognizing it probably wouldn't work, plus it would get a lot of opposition. So as I said, what my bill does is it sets the goals, and then it sets ways for states to, to enact state regulations that they can reach those goals by the time that we establish them. And I, I think that, that that's the only way we're going to be able to really make. But I mean, the, the most important thing is that we get to the 0% by 2050. You mentioned briefly the, the outdoor industry and the, the threat that climate change poses to it. Right now, the, the outdoor retailer trade show is going on just down the street from here. What does it mean, number one, for that show to be here in Denver? And number two, what does it mean and what do you think the outdoor industry is going to need to do to help lead or bring folks along uh, with this climate transition? Well, so so obviously from an economic standpoint, we were thrilled to get the outdoor retailer show here in Colorado. But what it's also reflective of is the change in the economy, not just of Colorado, but in the West. Uh, when I was growing up as a little kid in Colorado, our main industries were agriculture, oil and gas, um, uh, extractive industries. And so now that's really shifted. And every week when I fly home from Washington, D.C., I see this in the airport. I see so many people flooding into Colorado to go to the mountains and to participate in our wonderful recreational opportunities. And it's a huge market driver um, in Colorado and throughout the West. And, you know, I just saw something this week that said, Denver is the number one city in the country for millennials to be able to have a work-life balance and to be able to get jobs. So those millennials are going out every weekend into the mountains. And and so the outdoor, As anyone on I-70 can tell you. As anyone on I-70 can tell you. I've got some pro pro insider tips for how you can get <laughs> up to the mountains. But 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 uh so so the outdoor industry recognizing that they need to tap in to their base, to that millennial base, who are uh, really the market base of the outdoor industry, to make them understand that they need to make their voices heard, not just on the climate issues, but also on the public lands issues that are so important in the West. It's activating those users and making them activists, voters, yes. whatever, yeah, as, as well. that's right. And I don't say this, again, from a partisan standpoint, because I think that, that people on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, can be stewards of the land and stewards of the climate. They need to understand that their constituents think that this is one of the top issues. 
what other items is having to do with with the environment or public lands or otherwise what what else is on your to-do list either for this session or or the next well, another bill sessions. i've been working on is is this methane gas um uh, bill because this is a very concerning issue the amount of methane gas that is released into the atmosphere during um, oil and gas production methane gas is much more damaging than any of the other gases that are emitted, but yet we have very few restrictions on that. So I've got legislation that would that's that's uh, aimed at restricting the methane gas, and and by and th- this needs to happen on public lands as well as on private land. And by the way, I think that this is something. Of course, not that they would agree, but this is something that the oil and gas industry should really support because not only is it an environmental issue of the methane gas going into the atmosphere, but it's also an economic issue. It's it's a sellable product. Yeah. If they could capture that, then that would be a profit for them. But so far, I haven't convinced the industry of of that fact. Even though, I mean, Colorado is the model for the nation there in terms of, of, of methane rules. That's right. I, w- I want to go off a little off topic for a minute, partially because we are in the middle of this impeachment trial and partially because you've been in Congress uh, since prior to then. What has changed in your view in those 20 years between now and then in terms of getting things done on a bipartisan fashion? Is it harder? Is it just different? Or are there fundamental shifts in polarization now that makes it more difficult to get bipartisan conservation or, or public lands bills? Or do you think things are will, will swing back into balance at some point? Well, I think overall, in terms of bipartisanship, there's still a lot of bipartisan legislation that passes. The difference is, and, and remember, when I came to Congress in my second term was when they impeached Bill yep. Clinton. So we've we've had partisan fights all along. The difference has been with the rise of social media and the and the um, uh, decentralization of of regular media is there's much more of an emphasis on partisan fights. And so when we pass legislation that's really bipartisan, it gets so little press for many elected officials. It is. It's not an incentive to, to do bipartisan things. It's more of an incentive to bomb throw, and and I always try to resist that. I pass a lot of legislation in a bipartisan way, and it's a surpri- It's surprising how much gets done, but but the the lack of press attention and the decentralization of the press has really hurt for that. With respect to public lands, unfortunately, I I think what's happened a, a lot. Is that the that the Republican Party has become much less open to the idea of public lands preservation than it was in the past? I think about the day of the um, of the conservationist Republicans, of which there were many, and they were the leaders in conservation. Now um, it seems to me that the Republican Party is really resisting. A lot of the um, a lot of the efforts to preserve public land, and I don't think that that's what their constituents want. It's interesting in in my wilderness bill, as I mentioned, about two thirds of the areas in my bill are wilderness study areas, which means they've been managed 
as wilderness for almost 30 years. They were designated in the 80s. And so so I had I have a lot of Republicans saying we can't make these areas wilderness because we need to develop oil and gas there. Well, they've been wilder they've been managed as wilderness for 30 years. And this and that means that they were designated as wilderness during the Reagan and Bush that's, era, that's I mean, this exactly is the, the, right. even to have the legacy of, of James Watt. That's you're exactly about. that's <laughs> exactly right. And so, so I I think we really need to have a conversation in this country about our balance. You know, I don't think every place should be wilderness. I think it should be reserved for only the smallest little parts that truly meet the definition of wilderness, which is. No roads, no mechanized vehicles, you know, places where people can really go for the solitude. We've just got a minute or two left. So I, I want to ask you about some of these favorite spots in, in Colorado, either inside the bill or, or outside. I mean, so, so many folks think of Rocky Mountain National Park, Garden of the Gods, Maroon Bells. But what are your favorite off the beaten path places in Colorado that, that you get to when you can or that you recommend someone else go to or that you keep as a secret just to yourself and you only want to share with, with us and the listeners of this podcast? So so people do, as I said, people do think of Maroon Bells or Rocky Mountain National Park. And um, I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I was thinking, where do I, I love to go? And I realized I have 32 little babies and I can't pick between one <laughs> or the other. These are the areas that are in my wilderness bill and they are all stunningly beautiful. Uh, we were in, uh, over August, we were in Cross Canyon, which is over on the western border by Cortez, Colorado. And it is so remote that even the BLM folks had not been there. And we rode in there, my staff and I and the BLM folks rode in there on horseback. There are no trails. Mm -hmm. We just we just bushwhacked through there. And while we were riding through there, we found petroglyphs. We found um, ancient ruins of ancient peoples. And this was just in one area that we went to. I've been to so many of the areas that are in my bill. And every place I go, there's so many special, special remote areas. So I would advise people to go get a map and you can just knock off the 32 areas. and Find yourself a horse or a mule and and just go explore it. Yeah, or a pair of hiking boots. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Congresswoman Diana DeGette, thank you so much for taking the time and inviting us down today. So great being with you. Thank you. Let's wrap it up as we do around here with a look back at this week in Western history. We're heading to Arizona in 1861 with the first act that would lead to the Congressional Medal of Honor, America's highest military decoration. The medal recipient was an assistant army surgeon named Bernard J.D. Irwin, who set out on a rescue mission to help a lieutenant who was besieged by Cochise, the legendary Chiricahua Apache chief. Irwin saved the lieutenant and his men by tricking Cochise into thinking he had many more troops than the 14 men he'd brought with him. That is the basic story that would eventually earn Irwin the Medal of Honor, even though it didn't even exist at the time. But the whole story here is known as the Bascom Affair. It's a convoluted story of mistaken identity, kidnapping, murder, and revenge that has no heroes in it, but it did lead to 25 years of fighting between the Army and Apache tribes. 
The story starts with a 12-year-old boy who was kidnapped by a Tonto Apache raiding party that stole livestock from a ranch near Sonoida, Arizona. The boy's name was Felix Ward, and when his stepfather reported the kidnapping, Lieutenant George Bascom was assigned to take a large group of infantry to find the boy using any means necessary. The stepfather had said the kidnappers went east toward the Chiricahua Mountains, so Lieutenant Bascom assumed the Chiricahua Apaches had kidnapped the boy. Well, it turns out that was wrong, and it explains why Cochise, the legendary chief of the Chiricahua Apaches, was willing to sit down and meet with Lieutenant Bascom. Bascom demanded the return of the livestock and the boy. Cochise said, truthfully, he didn't have them, but he thought he knew who did, and he offered to negotiate if Bascom would just wait at Apache Pass for a few days. Well, somewhere along the way, the boy, the 12-year-old, got traded from the Tonto Apache to the Coyotero, or White Mountain Apache, and Cochise was going to go work all of this out. But Lieutenant Bascom didn't trust Cochise. He took Cochise's family hostage. Three men, a woman, and two boys. Cochise either left or escaped, and at this point on, there is no hope of negotiations. Cochise came back the next day and asked for his family back. Lieutenant Bascom refused, holding out for the return of the kidnapped boy. So the day after that, Cochise attacked a group of Mexican and American Teamsters, killing the Mexicans and taking three Americans hostage in hopes of exchanging them for his family. Bascom still just demanded the boy back. Let's remember, Cochise had never seen the boy and did not have him to return. So it was around this time, February 13th and 14th, 1861, that our future of Medal Honor recipient Bernard Irwin gets called in. Accounts differ as to the exact order in which all of this happens over the next couple days, but Irwin rescues Lieutenant Bascom and his men. Cochise then killed the hostages he had with him, and then Dr. Irwin either told or convinced Lieutenant Bascom and his men to hang Cochise's family in revenge. They did. That moment in 1861, when Cochise discovered that his brothers and nephews were dead, was the moment that led to two decades of open warfare between various Union, Confederate, and Apache fighters across the Southwest. The Civil War broke out later that year, of course, and in 1862, Congress created the Medal of Honor for gallantry in action. Bernard Irwin, the surgeon, went on to become a senior medical officer during the war. He stayed in the Army and eventually rose to a colonel by 1890. And in 1894, just before his retirement, Congress gave him the Medal of Honor for his actions 33 years earlier, which, let's recall, primarily involved a revenge hanging that sparked the Apache Wars. It is still, to this day, the earliest action that Congress has recognized with the Medal of Honor. Now, you might be saying right now there is still one missing piece to this story. Whatever happened to that kidnapped 12-year-old Felix Ward? That kidnapping started all of this. Well, Felix was adopted and raised by the White Mountain Apache. It doesn't appear that his stepfather made many, if any, efforts to bring him home. Felix had a foster brother, and in 1872, the two of them joined the army as Apache scouts. The soldiers couldn't pronounce Apache names, so they gave the scouts American English nicknames. And that is how Felix Ward, a red-headed Irish-Mexican kid who was kidnapped by one Apache band and then adopted into another became known as Mickey Free, 
named after a character in a popular Irish novel. Felix, now Mickey, served as a scout for 20 years, even going to Washington, D.C. at one point with other Apaches. He became a bounty hunter for a while, then moved to the Fort Apache Reservation and lived there as a farmer and tribal policeman until he died in 1914. It is, as far as I can tell, the one redeeming part of the story of the Bascom Affair, the first act that would lead to the Congressional Medal of Honor 159 years ago this week in Western history. And that'll do it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. Thanks again to Congresswoman Diana DeGette for her time. Her wilderness bill, by the way, just made it out of the Rules Committee, and it's heading toward the full house for a vote soon as part of a package to protect wilderness in Colorado, California, and Washington. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can always drop us a line, podcast at westernpriorities.org. And during weeks like these, when it feels like there is another huge public land story every day, these weeks are why we put out Look West. It is a quick daily email that gets you up to speed on parks and public lands news every morning. There's a link to sign up in the show notes. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.